Ron. Just want you know, I came this close to sneezing into this mic. That would have been really bad. So thankfully, the sneeze went away. But um, anyways, so yeah, that's exactly what we're thinking about is that idea of we come to that awakening. I love that picture where suddenly we realize what Christ is and does in our life. And then oftentimes we're drawn into, it doesn't happen immediately, being a part of his people. So the main point I want to get across is God, God is not just, it's not merely about individual people finding salvation in Christ. Of course, that's a part of it. You know, as we look at the big story of the Bible, we see God bringing a way of salvation for people to all peoples. That's a big focus of that story. But what we see as the plan starts to emerge is God is doing even more than that. God is building something. What is he building? He is determined to build for himself a people who bear the name of his son. An ever-growing multitude of those who've aligned themselves with Jesus Christ. Right? The three parts of that. This is a people that will be his possession. A people that will belong to God. That's what it means to be part of, of this community of disciples. We, we don't belong to ourselves anymore. We belong to him. A people that will be a visible representation of God and God's character in the world. The church is meant to be the visible way the people of this world who don't yet know Jesus have a chance to encounter and see God. Right? No one can see God in, in his heavenly throne room, but they can see the, the, the body of Christ. Wow, that's a heavy, heavy duty idea, that, right? We're the visible representation of God before this world. And, and then the third part is that a people who will be his intermediaries, or you could say emissaries, but I like that word, intermediaries to the lost people of this world. We're meant to be little bridges, for, for people out there who don't yet, don't know yet the, the, the goodness of God, we're the bridge to help them see it. That's God's intent. So, I'm gonna, so I, that's the main point. I, I decided to just tell you what I want you to hear, and now I'm going to go back and, and look at our passage and kind of show you how that, that brings this out. The passage we're looking at is, is from 1 Peter. It's a letter by Peter the Apostle. Um, this is the same Peter who was one of the fishermen in the Gospels. That's why I put his uh, picture on the, the screen. That's from The Chosen, where you have Jesus and, and Peter, the first two walking together. So I, as we're doing this series, I'm trying to give you a little bit of the different Bible books. And we're getting near the end. One more sermon after this one. So a few weeks back, we, we looked at the letters and, and the letters of Paul. And I told you that Paul wrote 13 letters the Apostle Paul was probably one of the key figures of the early church, but he's not the only one who wrote letters. We have other letters written by Peter. Um, uh, John wrote three letters. Um, there's also two, uh, James and Jude, who were actually not one of the early 12 disciples. James and Jude were other, the, the brothers, or you might say half-brothers of Jesus. They were sons of Joseph and Mary. Um, but nevertheless, they became part of this community, and, and they wrote. And then we have, we have a letter to Hebrews, and it doesn't say who wrote that one. And, and so there's some who think it was Paul, another one of Paul's letters. I, I, no way. 
Uh, the, the writing style of Hebrews, if you've ever read that, is completely different. And it has a different themes that it draws on than, than Paul's letters. So, so it's, it's a bit of a mystery who wrote Hebrews. And you, you can have, you get, you get Bible nerds and they'll argue over, well, was it Apollos or Barnabas or, you know, um, that's kind of one of those fun things. So, and then there's one more book yet that we're going to look at next week, Revelation. So, ooh, I'm giving you warning. Um, so anyways, so, so this is part of the other letters that were uh, written, not by Paul. And in the passage today, Peter's main point is God is at work building a spiritual temple out of living stones. So let me connect this to what I said about this a few weeks ago when Paul was speaking to the, the Athens in the Mars Hill thing, and he said this. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Right? So Paul is declaring to the people of Athens, God does not live in temples like the kind. You have all these temples in your city. The God who made the world does not live in those kind of temples, right? He does not live in a temple that we have to make with our hands. That's not where you're going to find him. And we know God Almighty dwells in the true temple in the heavenly realms. Um, in fact, Revelation 4 and 5 is a picture of the worship around that, that, that true temple in heaven. But at the same time, the Lord, the, the God Almighty, had used earthbound temples at, to, to be his you know, representation on the earth. So there have been, in a sense, you could say spiritual houses in the past that would be a visible place of worship where God could come and seek him. So what were those temples and what were they made of? Well, the first one was actually a tent. It's called the tabernacle. Uh, before the 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 people of Israel had moved into the Holy Land, while they were wandering around the desert, God gave them a, a, a portable temple. It was made of a tent-like thing that they would pick up and take out and carry around with them because that's how God's presence would be in their midst. So the tabernacle was the first of the, the temples. Later, when they had established themselves in in Israel and in Jerusalem specifically, Solomon, in Solomon's time, they built a temple. They, they now call it Solomon's Temple. But it was the temple to God, built by Solomon. And that was a time of great wealth for the, the people of Israel. And so it was made of wood, but, man, there's gold everywhere when you, when you read about how they made that, because um, they had a lot. And it was meant to glorify God. That temple, Solomon's temple, was destroyed by the Babylonians. So later, when they came back after exile in Babylon, they built the second temple. And this is under the time of Nehemiah. And again, it's made of stone, not nearly as impressive because um, they didn't have as much gold in that, that time in the second temple. That, that temple continued from about 500 B.C. down to the time of Jesus, sort of, except they would, they would rebuild it. And, then, and one particular king, King Herod, decided he wanted to curry favor with the Jewish people. And so he went on this grand building project that lasted 50 to 100 years or so. They were they're constantly, and he, he rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem to massive. And now it was no longer wood, it was made of stone. And it was, again, another um, temple. So there was, there, there was this temple that 
that was in place, made by human hands, but it wasn't the, the true temple in heaven. It wasn't God's dwelling place. It was a place of, of worship. When Christ came, that temple became obsolete, right? There was no longer going to be any need for animal sacrifice. That was not how we got right with God. The Savior was going to do it. And in fact, if you think about how did Jesus deal with that temple when he came in, he, he says he cleared it. He says, you made this place that was meant to be a house of prayer, you've turned it into a den of thieves. So that temple was no longer serving in a way that God wanted. And ultimately, it would be destroyed. In fact, Jesus predicted it would be destroyed when he said that there's not one stone that will be left upon another. So that temple would be destroyed in 70 AD. When, first Peter, when Peter wrote his first letter, that temple still was in existence but it was not the, the, the dwelling place of God. And so he's, he's coming into this. In fact, Peter was at one point arrested, and he was taken before the temple authorities. In fact, it's possible what I'm going to read, he said, he said within the temple uh, complex at some point, but he definitely said it to the high priest and the authorities about, about how God has now brought salvation through Jesus, so how Jesus was resurrected. And he says, this, this Jesus, um, who I've been telling you about, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And so there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men which we must be saved. Hear what Peter's saying? He's saying, Jesus now is the way that God gave for salvation. He is the stone around which God has created a path of salvation. He is the cornerstone. And yet, and yet you had, the ones who had charge of this temple, are the ones that rejected him. That leads into our passage. In, just to give you a little context, in 1 Peter chapter 1, he's talking about that, that individual experience of salvation in Christ. And he's, he says, you know, he's writing to, you know, the salvation you have already received. At one point he says, you know, you're obtaining the outcome of the, your faith in Christ, the salvation of your souls. Or another point in, in 1 Peter 1, it says uh, that they had already been born again into this new faith. Um, and then it says, you, the, the word the good news that was preached to you, that you had believed this word and that, that you now are in this place where you have experienced salvation. So that, that leads us into chapter 2, and th this phrase is, is, is the key. It says, now, what do we do? How do you grow up into salvation? It's not how do you grow to become saved. It's about how, having received salvation, how do you grow up into what God has planned for you? How do you grow up into salvation? And he gives the answer uh, of what, what you need. It says to, uh, that you would crave pure spiritual milk. So just as you had received the word earlier and had been born again, he, he uses that image, right? That like newborns, you would crave milk. And so now that you've been born again, of course, what are you going to need to grow? You're going to need this milk. Now, there's a translation issue that's in this. So this is uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 2. 
that you would long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you might grow up into salvation. The word, it's translated spiritual, can go a few different routes. It's, it's the, the word in Greek is lagakon. Lagakon. It, it, it sounds like the word logic. It, it, it's kind of related to the word logic. But it comes from logos, which is the word. So in some ways, you, you translate it spiritual, um, uh, spiritual milk and saying it's, it's not literal milk, right? It's not, it's not milk, you know, as in a dairy product. It's a, it's a different kind of milk. And so there's two, two ways. I, I looked up a whole bunch of versions. Sometimes it's translated spiritual milk. The other way it's often translated, and I think this might catch it better, is milk of the word. Right? If lo- logos, logicon means word. So it's, it's milk of the word. And this, this fits it. It says you were born again because you, the, the, good, the word is the good news that was preached to you. So... You, you came to faith through the Word. Now you need the, the, that more of that, the milk of the Word, the pure and unadulterated milk of the Word. As you crave that, you will grow into this. So God does not want to get you just saved so that you go to heaven someday. He wants that, but He wants you having been saved. He now wants you to take in and, and long for this and, and long to understand the things of God and what he has, that you would crave it. You'd want to day by day seek him in his word and understand what he has, has for you, that you may grow into the salvation and reflect it in your life. That's why we're doing this whole series. Right? I started it, I realized I started this way back in September, where we did the big story of the Bible. We did the Old Testament. Now we've been more lately doing the, the New Testament, and we're almost through it. But we wanted to give you the ability to know enough about the Bible and see the big story of what God's doing in the Bible that you could start to engage with this on your own. The, the elders and I were talking about kind of this, this idea. There's kind of three things we're hoping for everyone here. One is that you would hear the word preached on Sunday morning, that this would be a regular practice, that you're, you're growing from that. Second is that you would have your own time where you're engaging the word in your own, your own devotional life, quiet times, however you want to put it, where you are, you are taking in and you're seeking God in his word. And the third thing we, we think is important for everyone is that you're connected into some group where you're talking about what this means. Because I think we need help in understanding it. And I think a, a, great, a group where you can talk about it and and, and banter around is, is, is key. That's why we have Wednesday night studies. That's why we have life groups. That's why we have some of the Sunday school classes we do. We're trying to create opportunities uh, that every person here would find some place where they can in, in, deal with others and converse about what does this mean and how do I live it out. That you would crave this with pure spiritual milk of the word. All right. So that's, he's talking about that. And then, in verses 4 to 8, he goes to a metaphor. And it's the, the one I've already said, that God is at work building a spiritual temple or a spiritual house out of living stones. So, so it's based on this idea that salvation comes through Jesus and he is the chief cornerstone. That, that, that Jesus is the stone. God starts with him, right? You, you place the cornerstone first. And then you build the house around it. And Jesus says, the, the living stone out of which he, he's built this, this salvation. 
And then what is God going to do? He's going to keep adding to it. It's not just what Jesus did. Now he's going to keep adding stone after stone as he builds this building. That's a picture of what God is doing as, as more and more people turn to Jesus in faith. He, he does three Old Testament passages to make three points that kind of back up what he's saying. First, from Isaiah 28, it talks about how he's laying a stone in Zion. He's quoting Isaiah, laying a stone in Zion, which is the, the city of Jerusalem where Jesus was killed. Um, and that, that, that stone will be God's chosen means of salvation, right? He's, so Jesus is the stone that God is laying in, in, in Jerusalem, in Zion, by which people can enter the salvation. Then in Psalm 118, it says that the, the stone would be rejected by the builders, which, which is talking about how Jesus was rejected by the religious leaders, by the, 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 those who ran the temple, um, the high priest, that he was rejected. But nevertheless, even though he was rejected, God would make him the focus of the salvation project. And then in Isaiah 8, it talks about how some would stumble over this stone. That not all would, would receive him, but it would be a, a stone that people trip over. And in fact, people still take offense at Jesus for all kinds of reasons. There seems to be many reasons that they stumble. Is it, I mean, it, isn't it still true that even though God sent his son into the world to bring salvation to any who would receive him, so many seem to stumble over him, find him offensive. And yet he's God's chosen means to offer salvation to any who would receive it. So those are the Old Testament quotes. Jesus is the living stone, and those who believe in him also become living stones by which he's building this, this temple on earth. And so he'll, he'll, you know, God will say, well, let's add one more. You believe in Jesus? Okay, let's add you to the building. All right? You, know, oh, you, you believe in Jesus? Let's add you to the building. That means you, when you said yes to Jesus in your life, you were added to the building. This is saying it's not just about you and you going to heaven. Because you become part of something bigger that God is doing. You have a role in God's big salvation project. Just, just you know, the Apostle Paul says the same exact idea in 1 Corinthians 12 when he talks about the body of Christ. He says the, the, the body of Christ, um, there are many members into it, right? Many, many parts to the body. Each one of you is a member of Christ through faith in Christ. And yet you're, so you're, you're one part, but you're part of something bigger, and you have a role within the body of Christ. Just like with Peter, you're a living stone, and you have a part to play within this larger picture. Now sometimes, it may be, that as you come into the church, stones can be sharp, right? And you rub up against each other, right? And there's, there's conflict and tension. And it could be, God has to begin to shape us. In fact, it, it's not could be. It is. Each of us need to be shaped because each of us have hard edges that, that conflict with others. But if we want to be part of this building, he's got to work in our lives to begin to shape us so that we fit in the building the way God wants us to fit. So that's the analogy uh, that he's using, the metaphor. In verses 9 and 10, then he leaves that metaphor and goes into five truths about God's people. 
And so let me highlight each of those and talk about them. This is so that, that this building, these people would be a people who had received mercy. It is God's will that all of us are saved not by our own goodness or works. We are saved by grace. None of us can say, I'm here because I'm good enough to be here. We can only say, I'm here because he had mercy upon me. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. That is a trustworthy saying we can all, we can all say. Which means, as we follow him, we have no sense of arrogance, no sense of pride. We're not looking down upon the rest of the people in the world thinking, well, yeah, you know. No, we are, dude, I was there. And I'm so thankful that Jesus came into my life and changed me and, and began to work in me and that he received me. I know you could, he'd, I know he'd take you too if only you're willing to come. That's God's plan is that we'd be a people who would receive mercy. Second part of his plan, we would be a people belonging to God. That we could say we are his. He's claimed us. There's another verse that talks about we, he paid for us with the, with the, the precious blood of Christ. The, the word in Greek, as I looked on the people for his own possession, it, it has to do with the people that he has acquired for himself. Like he's, he, he has gathered, he, it, it's his initiative that has gathered his people. And I think what happens as, as you walk in Christ, as you grow into salvation, you start to see yourself less and less just about you as an individual and more and more about being part of his people. That we're in this together. That we're following Jesus together. I've seen that happen. For me, I, I think when I first came to salvation, I, it was kind of me and Jesus, right? And, and that's great because you want it to be, right, me and Jesus. But I've started to see more and more how, how important it is to be a part of his people together. The third thing, is that we are chosen to bear his name. Now, prior to Christ, it was only the, the Jews that were the, the chosen people, you would say. But now, we are all chosen. Though we were not a people before, we are one now. And it, it's, it says we are included in God's great plan, not based on our ethnicity or any other category. It says in Galatians 3 that we, you know, when you are baptized into Christ, whether you're male or female, slave or free, Jew or Greek, Right? We're united in Christ, but we're chosen to bear his name, which means we're chosen to, for his purposes in the world, to serve him. Right? The, the, the Jews of the Old Testament had a purpose that God was using them as part of his plan. We are also a part of his plan as we bear the name of Jesus in the world. A fourth part of this is says that we are a kingdom of priests. It's, it says royal priesthood, but that's the same thing. Royal is kingly, a kingly priesthood, a kingdom of priests. Back in Exodus 19, that God said that was the original intent. Uh, before he gave the Ten Commandments, he said to the Israelites, you will be a kingdom of priests. They never could live up to it. But, but what does that mean? They're part of his kingdom because Jesus is our king. But, but the kingdom of Christ grows not by military con conquest, we are not a, a uh, kingdom of soldiers. We're a kingdom of priests. A priest is an agent of reconciliation, an intermediary 
right? A priest in a generic sense helps someone who doesn't know God connect with God. That was the, the idea of that word, to help others connect with him. We are told you are now agents of reconciliation for the Savior. We don't, we don't fight people into this kingdom, right? We don't conquer them into this kingdom. We, we help intermediate them, that they might know God for themselves. And the fifth part of this is that we would be a holy nation. God is holy, therefore we're called to be holy. It says that we're meant to bear the image of Christ. And so that's part of what it means to grow up in salvation is, is in our inner being and in our character and our heart for others, in our lifestyle, we, we are called to more and more reflect Christ in how we live and what we do. Um, that we grow in the likeness of Christ. So therefore, we would be holy as he is holy. All five of those things, this is what God wants for every person who says yes to Jesus. This is what God wants for you, to be all five of these things. To not operate as a Lone Ranger Christian, but to draw you into a gathering of Christ followers who bond together and worship him. And that's what we're about at East Glenville. Our, our phrase, have you seen us put, put this on? I think we even have that now on our wall somewhere, don't we? What, can, can anyone know it? Learning to love God and love others as we follow Jesus together. Can, can we try that one? Learning to love God and love others as we follow Jesus together. That's a picture of what we're about here at this, this church. Let me move on to the next section. talks about the implications of being included in the people of God. And I think here Peter's warning, warning them, you will not necessarily fit into this world as you become part of the people of God. There'll, there'll be a sense where you will be an exile uh, from this world, a sojourner. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You, you will not, you, you'll be an outsider. That, that's what those words mean. You will be an outsider to the things of this world. A sojourner is someone who's, who's going on a journey. As you are following the Lord, you're going in a different direction from the other people in this world. I've mentioned the, the chosen, the, the TV series. I love their little intro as the intro song plays. They show all these fish swimming in a direction, and then one of them changes color and starts swimming the other direction. That's what happens when you're chosen, right? You start swimming the other direction from the rest of this world. We are sojourners and exiles. Um, and we're intended, it says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, meaning the non-believers, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evil, did you catch that? Did it say if they're going to speak to you as evildoers? No, it says when, right? When they make fun of you or they slam you for being a Christian and a follower of Jesus, it's not because you are a jerk. It's not because you've done something wrong, right? It's, it's the, so that when it happens, um, th there'll come a point in time where they'll see that your good deeds, and they'll glorify God. There'll come a time, fear not, if, if you endure opprobrium for Christ, one day you will be vindicated. That's what it's saying, that they may see on the day of, of Christ's return, 
they'll see, man, I, I had it all wrong. I've been thinking about this, this last verse. And here's the question. Have you ever felt embarrassed to be a Christian? Like, have you ever been in a spot where you're like, you know, I, I, I don't know if I want to necessarily be identified as a Christian at this time or a part of the church? Um, here, here's what I've been thinking about. How, we, we know there's a negative perception of, of church and Christians in the world right now. How much of that negative perception is of our own making? And how much of that is the negative portrayal in the media, in the elite culture, as they overhype our sins and failures? I was, I was in a little pastor's group, and I asked that question, and, and we kind of debated that a little bit. And it's not that we're going to have a discussion here, but I, I think, so in many ways, I think I, I used to have the idea that Mostly, it's them overhyping, right? The world is against us because they're against God, and they, they love to, to highlight our, our, our sins and our failures. They love to, if, if someone Christian does screw up, they wanna, they're, they're going to put them on the news. And that, that truthfully does happen. I do think the world, in some ways, um, loves to, to pick out the bad apples in our midst. I have to admit, in the last 10 to 20 years, We've had a lot of bad apples. And I think the church, some of the, the negative portrayal of the church is of our own doing, is of um, the scandals. The church has been about money at times. I mean, it, oftentimes I, I, I know when I, I, some, I just try to pay attention when I hear criticisms of Christians in the church. What are they really getting at? I've, I've heard Christians being accused used to being lousy tippers? I don't know. Is that true? I've, I've heard of more than a few, even Christian waitresses say, yeah, that's true. You don't, you don't want to get stuck with the church crowd. Oh, folks, I hope we don't. You know, for the sake of Christ, over tip. Right? Um, if you dare mention church or Bible, double your tip. I, seriously, I, I have friends who that's, that's the reputation of Christians. Um, Christians have a reputation of being obnoxious or pushy. Um, I, I know I've, young people have said, you know, grandma's really trying to shove her religion down my throat. There's that perception. And that, that's not even to do with the stuff the media does. You know, you got pastors who own private jets that are paid for by the, the tithing of widows. How does that make sense? Who brag about how much money they have? Who live high? Like, and then the, I mean, we know you get into the sex scandals. You know, we used to think it's just a Catholic thing. Uh-uh. It's all over. And then the church ignores that and just shifts around the, the, those pastors to another church so some other church gets stuck with the same thing. I think a lot of the crap we get from the world is due to our own stuff that we've done. And then there's part of me that says, that's so unfair. Because I know so many good-hearted Christians and, and earnest pastors out there that, that love Jesus sacrificially. And I know if, it, if you took away all the Christians, right, w would you have a, a, the, the city mission? 
who, who would be serving soup to the homeless? Right? Who would be taking in the, the people who were... I know Mike Sakosha was here yesterday for the men's retreat talking about going out in vans and making sure no one's going to freeze to death. You know, going to the extra mile. I know so many believers, and some are just simple people doing the best they can. So, so sometimes it seems so unfair that, that, that those who are doing with Christ are judged for the misdeeds of really what oftentimes are a small group. So I don't have an answer for this, but just realize as we follow the Lord, we are going to bear a heavy responsibility. That's why I'm initiating this. God has chosen, for good or for bad, that his reputation is on the line by how we live. Oh, dude, that's heavy. It is. People are going to judge whether they decide to follow Jesus in some ways based on what they see in us. And man, I, I want us to be, I want us to be this, right? That this is what they see, not the junk. That they would see a people who receive mercy. Oh, friend, I, I know I, I'm, so, you know, if that we're quick to apologize, right? I'm sorry I, I said it the way I did. I'm sorry I, I hurt you. I know I've received mercy. Would you, would, would you forgive me? Like, that, that we would just be a people of mercy. I hope they see a people belonging to God, that, that we're living for him and, and what he has, and we're trusting in him. I hope they see a people who've been chosen to bear his name, that we, we live honorably, and, and, and well, I hope they see a kingdom of priests, that we're, we're intermediator, intermediaries, we're helping people see Jesus in their life. I hope they see a holy nation, not that we're too holy for the rest of this world, but that we have a true Christ-likeness in the way we live. Friends, how is God fitting you into this? How is, is our God fitting you in to the spiritual temple? Let me pray. God, I can't believe that you made your reputation based on us. And so, Father, I, I, I own up to the fact that how many times I have fallen short in, in representing you well. Lord, I pray that you would do a work within me and in with all of us, that we would love you so much that our lives would represent you well within this world we live in. And I pray that by your grace, more people would come to know who you are and decide to, that you're worth following and enter into your salvation. We ask that we would be a part of that in this life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.